Hi, everybody. I am Mike Shea from SlyFlourish.com, and this is the DM's Deep Dive. In this show, I like to pick an industry expert and pick one particular topic in the world of D&D and dive deep in, into it today. And today I am here with Keith Amon. Keith, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, I am the uh, author of the blog, The Monsters Know What They're Doing, themonstersknow.com. Uh, also recently, the author of The Monsters Know What They're Doing, Combat Tactics for Dungeon Masters, published by Saga Press, came out uh, a couple of weeks ago, I guess about three weeks ago. And uh, yeah, you have another you have another book on the I, way, I, right? I, you know, I, I was on D&D hiatus for about 25 years and came back with <laughs> 5e and just uh, started doing the blog and, and it carried me where I am right now. So, which is, I don't know where that is, but I'm published. So that's where it is. <laughs> Somewhere good. And you're here on the DM deep dive. So you clearly made it. <laughs> um, do you have another well, book coming out that. too though, right? Yeah, Live to Tell the Tale, uh, which is the companion uh, volume for players, uh, which I've had published in a couple of editions as an ebook that I self-published um, Saga picked that book up too in an all new, fully revised version that's going to be out in June. Awesome. Um, so, new sections in there on uh, stealth and perception, mounted combat, um, lots of beautiful art. My ebook editions did not have art, this one has art. So, uh, rewrote all the battles, added a uh, level 15 sample battle. Uh, the ebook versions had levels one, five, and nine. So this one's got 15 also. Very cool. Um, so, and, uh, and a gorgeous cover. I'm so <laughs> stoked about the cover. Lily Pressland, uh, at K-R-O-O-V-V, I believe on Twitter, uh, did the covers for both books. And uh, I really liked the one for the monsters know what they're doing. But when I saw the one for live to tell the tale i was giddy i was literally giddy i just blown away by how great it was and and uh i'm i'm really excited to get that one out because you know with smarter monsters on the scene thanks to the monsters know what they're doing some yeah there, there needs to be something out there to uh even the score for players you're so. just you're just upping everyone's tactical game on both sides well yeah like yeah. an arm I like mean, an arms dealer that, because it's part of the fun you know i feel like I, despite what people may think, I'm really a real role player at heart. And I think one of the ways that you role play your character effectively is by acting out their expertise. You may not spend all your time thinking about how to use your PC's tactics effectively, but your PC thinks about it. <laughs> and so if you want to role play them, you know, you don't want them to be a schlemiel out there. You want them to actually be doing what they do well. So. Awesome. Um, yeah. So we're here today to talk about monster tactics and, and yes. the, you know, look at the, the fine work that you've done both on uh, the monster nose, which got a lot of attention in the, in the D and D blog world. You know, it was one that, that I had seen, I don't know. I certainly wasn't one of the, the the first people to see it, but it certainly picked up, and I saw it recommended over and over again as a great blog with a really good, clear focus of a specific topic. And I love to see blogs that have these sort of very specific and 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 clear uh, clear niches. 
so we're going to be talking about monster tactics today and what we can do to bring monster bring bring more monster tactics into our game. Uh, I always like to start the, the the show off with uh, three three tips that you have. So what are three tips that you have for DMs to improve their monster tactics? Read the stat block thoroughly ahead of time. You do not want to be looking at monster features for the first time in the middle of a combat encounter when you're running. <laughs> you want to actually know in advance what they can do. Um, draw up a battle plan in advance as part of your prep because that reduces your cognitive load during the encounter itself. You don't have to make as many decisions on the fly. You don't get the awkward pauses. You don't get the weird blunders. You've already got some if-then statements in place. If the players do this, the monster will do this. So the decision is already made for you. It makes things more efficient during the game session itself. Um, third thing, know what the monsters want. Know what they know. Know how strong their position is. So it helps you make decisions such as, will this monster parley? Will this monster flee? Will this monster stand its ground? Um, a monster, for example, that is guarding a location is going to behave very differently from a monster that's just looking for food. Um, so know what's motivating it in that moment, um, what it knows that the players don't know, what it doesn't know that the players do know. These things are going to affect its behavior. That's excellent. So uh, in, the, in the second tip of uh, develop a battle plan, uh, what if what if you don't know that it's going to turn into a battle? Is it assume still, it will. Assume it will and assume and it will because yeah, because I mean, players are unpredictable. The better the player, the more unpredictable they are, and you you want to. I mean, basically, a monster encounter can go two ways: combat or social. Mm -hmm. You want to cover both bases. Mm -hmm. You know, that's covering the social interaction base that's knowing what the monsters want and what they know and how strong their position is. And then having the battle plan is, is covering the combat encounter base. Um, mm -hmm. So if you have both of those bases covered, you are pretty much prepared for every situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd argue that uh, if we think about the third pillar of exploration, you know, when we think about how wide exploration is, the idea of, of sort of stealthing your way around a bunch of monsters can, can be a, a, a third option as well, right? That, sure, but then you don't have to plan for that from the monster's point of view. If, yeah, if right. PCs stealth past them, then so they just never it. noticed. Right. Um, whereas the result of somebody exploring and stumbling across the monster is always going to result in combat or social interaction or mm -hmm. some of both. Right, right, right. Yeah, and, I, and in the intro of your book, you talk a lot about the ecology of monsters and that, that idea of knowing what they want. And uh, you even go through that for each of the monster types. Mm -hmm. uh, there was, there's, there's a section here you're like with elementals. You're like, you know, I don't know about them. <laughs> elementals are, are weird are ones. <laughs> hard to get into the heads of. Yeah, and you like had they some really, are really- They're almost as alien as aberrations are right. when you get right down. Right, right. And like, yeah, and, and aberrations, you mentioned that too. Like you know, mm -hmm. they should be weird. Like that's, you know, yeah. and, and the problem Absolutely. is you probably can't think about what they're going to do because they're aberrations. By definition, if you can understand what they're doing, they're, they're not really aberrations. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge to, it, it is always a challenge to make an aberration weird enough. Right. right they right. really got to be weird. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I go back to like Orson Welles and the War of the Worlds, where he's like, you know, the the Martians just look at human beings like under a microscope as though they were looking at insects, you know, and mm -hmm. it's just cool, methodical, you know, a cool, methodical look. It's like, well, that that's oh, I have what Avalis would do. Uh... Yeah, I have a I have a line actually in the monsters know what they're doing, similar to that in which I basically say, an aberration might be fighting you for the same reason that you would smack a malfunctioning vending machine. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, yeah maybe right, right, and and like or they might just stop. Right, they might they might completely change. You know what? We're just going to turn the other way and leave. Yeah, because this is turned in. Yeah, that's fantastic. So one of the things you and I had talked about doing was actually walking through your process of, sure. of monster analysis. And uh, mm -hmm. you brought up the, the the Steel Predator, which is from... That was a reader requested that I look at the Steel Predator. Um, yeah. I which have book a is that in? queue of, of reader requests that I'm very, very slowly grinding my way through. And so the Steel Predator from Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes uh, was on deck. Excellent. So just going starting at the top of the stat block, which is what I usually do. And actually, I usually look at the stat block even before I look at the uh, flavor text. Interesting. Um, because I'm, I'm coming at it from the point of view of mechanics first, mm -hmm. independent of lore. Then I look to see whether the lore fundamentally agrees or disagrees. Ask myself if it disagrees does the lore make more sense or does my analysis make more sense? Or does the lore shine a different colored light on the analysis that I've already made? Um, gotcha, interesting. So I always start with the stat block. First line, large construct. Okay, so constructs don't really have goals. <laughs> they, they don't have, have their own purposes. They have instructions, okay? So one of the things we already know about the Steel Predator is that it is not going to flee to preserve itself. It's going to continue to carry out its instructions to the best of its ability. Um, hit points generally don't really matter. Speed tends to only matter if, um, if there's a, uh, an alternate form of movement like burrowing, flying, climbing, swimming. Uh, this one has a 40-foot land speed, which is fast, faster than the average PC, not faster than every PC. Um, so this was this one's going to be pretty good in chases, but not overpowering in chases. Um, and we can guess from the name that there are gonna be chases involved when you bring one of these onto the scene. Um, so next are ability scores. And uh, when I started writing the blog, I wasn't very far in before I came up with the phrase ability contour. And what I mean by ability contour is um, where are the where are the peaks specifically where are the peaks but you know where are the highs and lows where is it strong where is it weak um, because this is going to determine its overall combat style um, and I generally look to identify a primary defensive ability and a primary offensive ability so primary defensive ability is almost always going to be dexterity or constitution. In very, very rare, rare instances, it might be wisdom, but that's going to be for a monster that conducts most of, it be, most of its behavior in the realm of social interaction. When you get down to combat, it's going to be dexterity or constitution 99 times out of 100. So 
the high constitution monster is going to be drawn to melee because they can take the hits. A high dexterity monster is going to try to avoid being hit, which means they're either going to be very mobile or they're going to remain at range. And that is partly a function of what kind of attack actions they have, which we'll look at later. Um, if they don't have any uh, ranged attacks, if they're fundamentally melee oriented, but they have high dexterity, but not high constitution, then what we're looking at is a shock attacker, an, an assault troop of some kind that's going to try to get in, do a lot of damage fast, and then withdraw so that it's not sticking around to take the hits. It's going to try to do Nova attacks and then get away and then, you know, come back, do it again over and over for as long as it takes. Or maybe it's a predator. It's just going to go for the one hit. And if the one hit doesn't work, it's going to give up and look for a different target. The assassin NPC, for example, uh, follows that pattern. Then primary offensive ability is anything except constitution, because there's really no offensive way to use constitution. <laughs> um, strength is going to be brute melee. If dexterity is the uh, primary offensive ability, it's going to be either a shock attacker or a ranged attacker, or possibly if high dexterity is paired with high constitution, it's going to be a skirmisher that's going to do a lot of modest but steady damage by attrition and tank it out, um, you know, just kind of cutting you to death. Um, if the primary offensive ability is a mental ability, then either it's a spellcaster or it's favoring social interaction over combat. So what we have here with the Steel Predator, we have extraordinary strength, extraordinary constitution, both of them over 18. Dexterity is very high, but the peaks are still in strength and constitution. So this is gonna be a brute melee fighter. It's going to close into melee and tank it out. Um, it's gonna try to run you down and, and maul you, um, whatever its target is. Now, if, if you go read the flavor text, um, the steel predator is created to go after a single specific target. Um, so it's going to zero in on that target and just grab them like a terrier, basically. Um, except that terriers are small and the yeah, steel predator a CR is large. CR 16 terrier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Who's Intelligence and wisdom also come into play uh, in terms of their behavior. And I divide it up uh, as intelligence being the ability to read a situation and adapt on an intellectual level, wisdom being intuition, self-preservation, a sense of whether things are going well or poorly, um, and then charisma will come into play if there is a social interaction situation. A, a monster with higher charisma will actually look for opportunities to get what it wants through social interaction because, you know, it's a decent alternative. Um, so this one has a very low intelligence, four. So one of the things that's going to mean 
not going to be able to adapt if things go weird. It's going to have one way of operating. It's going to use that way, and it's not going to deviate from it. Uh, also, with respect to target selection, it's going to be, it, it's not going to distinguish at all uh, among targets that are not its target. It's going to zero in on one, and it doesn't know anything about anyone else in the battle. Um, it can't tell a fighter from a cleric. It, it doesn't know strong from weak. It, it practically doesn't even know that the other combatants are there unless they get in its way. It's just going to disregard them. Um, it has no way of uh, prioritizing one target over another, except its target is its target. Anyone who gets in the way is a target that has to be gone through to get to the target. Uh, now the wisdom on the other hand uh, is relatively high. Um, usually that would mean that if it sees things are not going well, it would break off and maybe try to negotiate, but this is a construct. So it's not going to follow that usual pattern. Uh, in this case, it doesn't really have independent judgment its wisdom is simply a stand-in for its ability to perceive. Um, so it, it kind of breaks the mold in, in that respect. Um, skills. Whenever you see the combination of proficiency in perception and proficiency in stealth, you have an ambush attacker. So this thing is going to begin hidden or in some way seek to make its first strike unseen. Um, survival plus seven, uh, I guess it's probably going to use that for tracking. If you are its target and you're doing something to cover your tracks, it's able to follow them. Um, I don't really see what other application it has, um, but it is, it is very suitable for something that's engaging in a chase against something that's trying to cover its tracks. So that's how we'll think about that skill. Um, damage resistances and immunities and condition immunities, those don't really come into play except when you have a monster that's trying to decide which of its opponents poses the greatest threat to it. So if you have a lot of resistances or immunities and, and an opponent is targeting you with some kind of damage or attack that you are not resistant or immune to, you're gonna pay more attention to them. You're gonna to try to take them out. Um, but this is a single-minded construct. It's not really thinking in those terms. So we can pretty much disregard that. Yeah, and, and those resistances and immunities are really around the fact that it's a magical construct, right? Right. Like these are all relatively- Right, yeah, it's the standard, standard package. Resistance and immunities for-, for particularly high power mechanical constructs, right? Yeah, there is one exception though, and that is bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing from non-magical attacks. Yeah. Um, so here's how this is gonna come into play for the Steel Predator. If you run at it with an off the rack halberd and start hacking at it, <laughs> it is actually immune to your attacks. So when it comes to its decision, whether you're in its way or not, 
you're not in its way. You're not hurting it. You're, you're, you're doing nothing to it, so you mean nothing to it. It's going to keep going after its target. Now, if you come after it with the plus two halberd, <laughs> now it has to deal with you. So now you've made it onto its target list. Um, okay. Uh, blind sight and dark vision. Now, with an evolved creature, when you have something with dark vision, uh, say a denizen of the underdark or uh, a nocturnal creature above ground, dark vision means they're going to come after you at night. They're going to leave you alone during the day because they have the advantage over you, potentially at night. I mean, obviously, a lot of PCs have dark vision too, but the default assumption is that uh, an above ground creature doesn't have dark vision. So a monster with dark vision will attack at night when it has the advantage. And even with creatures, uh, with characters, excuse me, that do have dark vision, um, that's when you're on equal footing with them as opposed to on daytime when you would have the disadvantage. So uh, dark vision is generally going to mean attacks at night. I don't know with the steel predator whether it's that sophisticated like i i kind of feel like if it's given orders to attack a target it's just going to go do it right away it's not going to wait for sundown um but we'll we'll see if anything else shows up in the stat block to make me think about that differently honestly i think it's going to be kind of opportunistic it's just going to attack when it attacks um Da, 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 da. Okay, so innate spellcasting. The thing, <laughs> the thing that just makes me groan every time I analyze a monster is when I see that it has a huge list of spells. <laughs> because then you have to go through and compare every single spell with every single other spell and, and decide, you know, what's going to be worth using in the three to five rounds the combat is most likely going to last and what's gonna play second fiddle. Um, luckily, our friend the Steel Predator here has only two spells, and they are both what I call escape hatch spells, Dimension Door and Plane Shift, and they're both self only. And they're usable three times a day. So if you have a spell like that that's usable only once per day, you have to give a lot of thought about when to use it. Um, if it can do each of these things three times a day, it means it's well, doing now. There's a lot. Might as well do them all the time. Yeah. It, it can use them opportunistically, um, but also there uh, there's a difference between dimension door and there's a couple of differences between dimension door and plane shift. So dimension door can only take you a short distance on your own plane. Plane shift takes you to an entirely different plane. However. Dimension door is precise. Plane shift is imprecise. If you plane shift to wherever, you end up somewhere in wherever, but not necessarily where you meant to end up. Um, so what we have here is plane shift, which seems to me like the one that it will use when its work is done and it's going back to base versus dimension door it can use dimension door in a lot of different ways it can use it to leap ahead of its target like it teleport itself to where its target is going it can use it as a um, 
as a, uh, it can use it to initiate its attack. Now, because it takes a full action to utilize, it cannot um, dimension door and then attack on the same turn, which would be really ferocious. It's almost too bad it doesn't have Misty Step, right? Yeah, something like that uh, would be would be devastating. Um, but what it can do is dimension door in and then combat begins right away. And in fact, it can dimension door itself right next to its target so that once combat begins, if the target tries to run, oppo. Mm -hmm. um, so dimension door can be used to cross barriers. Like if you slammed the door behind you, too bad, it just popped itself over to your side. Um, there's a lot of interesting ways that it can use that. And the one thing we're gonna have to figure out is uh, how does it know when it's about to run out? So that's, that's gonna be a question in the back of my mind. How is it going to be able to ration its uses? Because a construct, like um, let's take the uh, clay golem. When I analyze the clay golem, um, it's very advantageous to the clay golem to cast haste on alternating turns if it can. But clay golems are really dumb and inflexible. So it's not a matter of, it's a good idea. So it's something the clay golem should really consider doing. It's something the clay golem does. It just does it automatically. It has no independent judgment in the matter. Um, so we're going to have to figure out to what extent can a steel predator use independent judgment vis-a-vis -vis when to cast Dimension Door. Um, magic resistance, um, it's not necessarily going to see spellcasters as a threat if they are not between them and their quarry. Um, so we're pretty much down to the actions. The multi-attack, sometimes multi-attacks include really interesting combinations. This one doesn't. It's straightforward, <laughs> one bite, two claw. So multi-attack equals maul. Mm -hmm. All right. Here's, the, here's the, the one really interesting thing we're going to see in the Steel Predator stat block, the Stunning Roar, Recharge 5-6. Recharge 5-6 is almost always code for this ability is so good that the monster will always seek to use it if it's not on cooldown. Um, this, this ability is so good it has to be rationed. Um, and recharge 5-6 is once, maybe twice per combat on average, which means if it can use it once, it's going to use it as soon as it can. If it gets it a second time, it's gonna seize that opportunity and use it again. Um, so the steel predator emits a roar in a 60 foot cone. Each creature in that area must make a DC 19 con save. On a failed save, it takes thunder damage, drops everything it's holding and is stunned for a minute. Um, successful stave, half damage, no riders. So, there's a table on page 249 of my edition of the Dungeon Master's Guide. I don't know if the page number has ever changed. It's in chapter eight. Um, I use this 
table so much. I could tell you what page it's on, 249. <laughs> I, I just go back to that again. Like there are, uh, there are a number of useful uh, things in that section of the Dungeon Master's Guide. And I just turn straight to page 249 and then, you know, flip forward or back to whatever else I'm looking for because 249 is targets and area of effect. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my favorites. Well, yeah, because you are a big fan of theater in the mind combat. Yep. Um, and that is the intended purpose of targets in area of effect. It's to adjudicate how many targets are hit by an area effect spell when you are not using a battle grid. What I use it for is to assess how many targets make an area effect ability worthwhile. So for example, if you have uh, your basic fireball, 20 foot circular or spherical radius, um, four targets according to targets in area of effect. So that means if a monster has the ability to cast a fireball, it becomes worth using at four targets. If you can get four targets in that spherical area of effect, the monster will use it. If it cannot get four targets in that, and it doesn't have unlimited fireballs, if it's you know costing spell slots or three per day or whatever, if it's rationed, then it's only going to use it when it can affect at least four targets. Uh, otherwise, other things become more valuable uses of its time. An action economy in fifth edition is a really, really big deal. Um, because every character, creature, monster, anything that can do stuff has an action and movement. Some of them have bonus actions or reactions, but not all of them, which makes bonus actions and reactions very valuable. Time is, time is money in fifth edition. <laughs> um, so, okay, getting back to Stunning Roar, we have a 60-foot cone. So per targets in area of effect, that means we want to affect at least six targets. Hmm. Well, what if there aren't six targets on the field? What if the party is only four PCs? Well, then it's going to be willing to use the Stunning Roar if it can get all of its opponents. If, if the number of opponents is fewer than six, it will use the stunning roar when it can get all of them. If there are six or more, it will use it when it can get six or more. Mm -hmm. um, now, when you have an ability like that, that's on a recharge and therefore very good, uh, the Steel Predator is going to maneuver itself into a position where it can get those six. If, if there exists some point on the battlefield where it can use that ability and get six targets with it, then it's going to move itself to that point and use it. So, um, so it's it, going to set itself up for the ability before it uses the ability. It's not just going to do it where it's sitting and then think about where it should go. It's, it's even going to have this if the... It's, it's going to have this if this, even though its intelligence is four, it's still considering 
how many targets it might be able to hit with its roar? Well, because that's a mechanistic decision. I mean, that's that's like an if then statement in a in a computer program. You know, mm-hmm. if if six or more, then use it. Um, because why would you have it otherwise? And why would it have that particular range otherwise? Now, um, the really key thing here um, is the is the stun effect because so much of fifth edition combat revolves around conditions and six conditions in particular blinded charmed grappled uh i'm sorry not grappled grappled is grappled is kind of important but restrained restrained, paralyzed stunned and prone uh because those are the ones that confer advantage and disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Um, when the creature is stunned, it is a juicier target for the steel predator. What it really wants to do is stun its main target. That is what it is hoping to do with the stunning roar. Um, and if it does, then it's going to... It's actually, I think, going to try to use the stunning roar against its designated target before it even goes in and uses its multi-attack against the designated target. Because stunning it for a minute um, and making it drop everything it's got makes it so much more vulnerable that this is going to be the crux of the Steel Predator's attack pattern is using Stunning Roar both to uh, incapacitate the target. I use that in the, in the broad sense, although Stunning does include incapacitation. And also to incapacitate as many people as possible who could defend that target. But when it chooses to attack, it's going to go for the target. Um, when it has a second opportunity to use the stunning roar. I think that's gonna depend on whether its designated target remains stunned. Um, So I think here's our heuristic as I'm putting this together now. Um, First thing it's gonna do is stunning roar, get six opponents or all of its opponents, whichever is fewer, including its designated target. On its second round, it's going to, uh, well, first of all, it depends whether Stunning Roar recharges or not, because you do have the possibility that the target was not stunned, but it got a lucky roll and Stunning Roar recharged right away. So if the target is not stunned and Stunning Roar is available, it will use Stunning Roar. If the designated target is stunned and nobody's getting in its way, it'll rush in and multi-attack. If the designated target is stunned, but somebody else is getting up in its grill, then it has to uh, decide, then it, then it has to maybe turn its attention to them. And the question becomes, is stunning roar available again? Um, well, what if it is? What if um, stunning roar is available, but this one guy who's getting in the way of the stunning 
steel predators, you know, going after its designated target. What if that's actually the only person on the battlefield who's not stunned? Well, then actually stunning roar would be overkill and a waste of an action. You might as well just multi-attack the interloper instead. Um, pretty much what we're looking at is repeated iteration of those same statements right there. And it's not going to deviate from them because it just doesn't have the independent judgment to deviate from them. This is, this is what it's going to do. It's not going to flee, no matter how much damage you do to it, because it's got a job to do and it's a construct. Um, so until it completes its job or is broken, it's going to keep doing the same thing. I usually use thresholds of 40% or 70% of hit point max to decide when a creature is going to flee. The ones that are more truculent, uh, they, they flee at 40% if they're going to flee at all. Um, the ones who are a little more thoughtful and, and care more about their own skin. Also, natural predators, which uh, want their prey easy. Um, those kinds of uh, monsters are going to flee after being reduced to 70% of their um, hit point max because, I, you know, the, the only, this is, this is one of the areas where I just deviate completely from something in 5e. Technically, rules is written in 5e, the only threshold at which you see a difference in how badly damaged an opponent is, is 50%. And I don't like that cutoff. It's, it's too soon for a lot of monsters, but too late for many others. Um, I, I've got a little shadow run in my background. I love the light, medium, severe wound designations and the fact that everyone had 10 hit points. Um, so those are the cutoffs I use. You know, if, if you've taken 10% of max, you're lightly wounded. If you've taken 30% of max, you're moderately wounded. 60% of max, severely wounded. Um, and I like using those as the thresholds for deciding whether or not a monster or an NPC is willing to keep fighting. Where, where is the 50%? Where does that, where, where do you see that in fifth? Uh, that is under uh, damage in the player's handbook, I believe. Hmm. Um, I'd, I'd have to double check that because like I said, I don't use it. So it's not something I go back to constantly. Um, but it's, uh, that's the threshold at which, uh, I guess, damage officially becomes visible. Ah. Hmm. So that's where you can look at your enemy and say, oh yeah, they're pretty badly hurt. Um, but anyway, I think, uh, I think that pretty much concludes the analysis of the Steel Predator. I haven't seen anything that um, is going to make it particularly care uh, about distinctions between one enemy or another. I think, it, I think it just boils down very, very concretely to, is somebody preventing me from getting to my designated target? And if they are, clear the blockage. Mm -hmm. And if they're not, then do what I came here for. Mm -hmm. um, and what I came here for is to try to stun my designated target uh, and then maul it. 
So I have a, uh, I have oh, a bunch of thoughts. Because there's the, the dimension door questions too. I yeah. Think, I think I would probably just make myself a short list of uh, simple situations that um, that uh, it would be able to assess as criteria for using dimension door. Um, like the target went through a door, closed it and locked it behind it. That's a pretty obvious one. Teleport to the other side. Um, maybe uh, my quarry is actually managing to outrun me. It's faster and I didn't expect it to be faster. So dimension door next to it so that it has to risk an opportunity attack uh, if it dashes away. And if it disengages and moves away, then it's only using half of its potential movement, and so I can catch up to it. Um, I think I think the list is going to be pretty short. Uh, maybe if it like jumped up to a, a parapet or something, then I can dimension door up to the top of the parapet. Um, or uh, if it caused a cave in, I can dimension door to the other side of the cave in. Simple things like that. Um, yeah, so so some, as, as well as just appearing on the scene in the first place. Right. Yeah. And to know. me, that's when I when I look at the dimension door and the plane shift. And and so what it is a, a, a few interesting things that, that come to mind while you while you walk through this. Uh, one is you mentioned that you go to the stat block before you go to the flavor text. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, I think when I was reading what I made it sort of a goal that when I got a new monster book, I would read it cover to cover. And I spent most of my time on the flavor text figuring like I'll hit the reading. I'll hit the stat block when <laughs> when I'm when I'm gonna you know I'll hit the I'll hit the stat block when I'm gonna run it. Uh, but the flavor text will tell me the general gist of what a creature is supposed to do. And in this case, because it's an assassin on demand, it's a construct that was developed by Modrons and you have to like, you know, it, it is like a bloodhound, right? You give it a piece of right. cloth and be like, but like a know, rogue sniff this. got fired from the Connors. Yeah, right. He got kicked out. And now he has a store in Sigil where he sells yeah. these things. I wonder how much a challenge rating 16 construct costs. I bet it's a lot. Um, and given the power of this thing. So when I, when I think about its dimension door, well, when I think mostly, I think the plane shift is the one that has the most interesting flavor to it, that you can send this thing across the multiverse to hunt somebody down. Mm -hmm. Right. And that to me is particularly interesting. Now, one but thing the flip side is you can't use it to enter battle because it's not precise enough. You use plane shift to get it onto the plane. Yeah, right. It knows, it knows it you're is, on that. Right. You know, then it's got to take Amtrak or whatever. And <laughs> it knows it's in your world. Uh -huh. right? um, yeah. So then the uh, so so one and then one question I have is like and this is this this is a, a DM style thing. But like I'd have no problem replacing Dimension Door with Misty Step. Right, like I would just, I would just do it, <laughs> right? Because it's I mean, like you can always, you can always take a stat block and fiddle with it, customize it, right? Make, make the monster do what you want it to do, right? Right. Uh, and to me, that that fits. It's when I think again about that story, and so, so, and and that story because it has like a little line in here, which is about the only line of tactics. I think it's two sentences. Because once battle is joined, the predator ignores every other threat to its target unless other creatures prevent it from reaching its target. In that case, it does whatever it must to fulfill its mission, which isn't real specific but it makes me think like it just wants to get up to whoever it's hunting and beat the snot out of them right and then and my my thought was it's going to use it well and then your 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 description kind of changed my how i would how i would think about running it which is the stunning roar is almost like get off of me like i'm i'm gonna go kill this guy and if i'm getting beat by the barbarian i'm gonna turn around and yell at him and stun him and then go back to beating on the guy i'm beating on again mm -hmm. but 
you know, and then but the stunning roar is also very useful. For yeah, it's really useful. Target. Yeah, it's really useful against hitting the target you're going after as well. Um, One of the things I'm always looking for in a stat block is some kind of tactical combination, by which I mean something yeah. that makes it easier to do something else. Right. Um, restraining, stunning, paralyzing. These things are huge because they confer advantage on the incoming attacks. Right, right. And yeah. advantage is so big yeah. in fifth edition. <laughs> on average, it's plus yeah, four. Plus five, yeah. Plus four uh, plus well, five. on average, it's plus four around right. the, um, the mid-range of right. required die rolls. It's plus five. Yeah. Uh, and the most powerful magic weapons in 5e are now yeah. plus three. Right. So advantage is better than any magic item you're going to get. Which is why, which is why thugs, yeah, thugs are badass no matter what level you run them at, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> as um, long as they're not alone. Yeah, right. As long as they're not by you themselves. Know, they got the they got the courage in numbers, but you catch one by himself. Right. Right. Um, so the other interesting thing that occurs to me because when you hear uh, the D and D designers talking about how they make monsters, right, mm -hmm. and this is something we've talked about on this on this show before um which when, i actually have never listened to well thanks for about that. how they might make monsters uh, this is, this thanks, is oh, i thought you meant you never listened to my that. show but that might be true too i don't know um it's a good show you should watch it so um the uh the, the thing that occurs to me about how they make monsters is they they're essentially doing what you're doing in reverse mm. right that they start with like and i think they had sort of two two variables but first and foremost is what's the story of this creature, okay. right? If they sit down and say, what is a steel predator? What is, what is this thing? And they, they'll, they'll, they'll generate these concepts and then the mechanics of the, of the creature fit whatever that story. They is, emerge right? from the story. Yeah, they'll, they'll give it those pieces that help it fit that particular story. Mm -hmm. And I think in some circumstances, they'll also look back. I think this is probably true when they were originally doing fifth they talked about how they would also look back at the, all of the versions of a monster that had occurred before and say, what are some of the iconic features mm. that that monster had? And that's like the Mind Flayer's stun ability or, you know, um, lot, lots of different things. They would kind right. of say like, well, we want to we wanna give, you know, like a Spectre's drain life. You know, we're not going to drain levels anymore like we did in the old days, but we will let it drain hit points and we'll let that hit point drain be you know, potentially fatal. Yeah. yeah. Well, potentially fatal. And, and I was going to say semi-permanent, but even semi-permanent considering you can rest and get rid of it is a yeah. little, a little less. Um, so what's interesting. One of my players though, got, uh, got beaten up by a clay golem and that lasted a while. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Does that thing, does the clay golem's ability not, not go away? It, um, I think it requires, uh, yeah. Greater restoration. restoration. Yeah. I actually, and, and just like I would add, just <laughs> just like I would add uh, Misty Step to the Steel Predator, I'd have no problem adding the to, to particularly high power undead that drain life that you don't get rid of it by resting. You need a greater yeah. restoration or lesser restoration in some cases. Um, just because, yeah, I think it's kind sure. of lame that you can just yeah. I mean, any DM can make those kind of modifications. Right. But when I'm when I'm analyzing a monster, yeah, you want to stick with what it's got. Space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to stick, and that's the same thing with spellcasters too. I've read. I've read your I've read your analyses of a lot of spellcaster creatures and and how you use them in there, 
and a lot of times I just change the spells out. Right? Like I, I look oh, at the God, situation. It's impossible to to analyze if if you you know cover. Yeah, right. If you consider like any the, right, right, the right, right, possibility right. that any of these spells could be swapped yeah. out for something else, it'd right. become unmanageable. Yeah, then it's yeah, it's practically infinite, right? I mean, um, the archmage was already unmanageable to begin with, but yeah, or the lich. Right? <laughs> I'm glad I'm done with yeah. that. One. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite is the lich, right? I always, mm -hmm. I always, I love liches. Um, yeah, so I think it's interesting. So I think the both to me, both of those directions are interesting. That it's you know that that you're sort of reverse engineering what was going through the heads of the designers a bit. Now, and mm -hmm. both of you are aiming towards the same thing, which is what's the story of this monster, right? Yeah. And one of the things that I, I I love about your site and I love about your book, you know, and you know me, right? I'm I, I'm lazy. I don't want to do any of this work. And <laughs> we you know, are so opposite when it comes to prep. <laughs> yeah, you wrote that in a book, right? You even said it in here in my in my little autograph about you know. <laughs> Right, I could never be as lazy as you. You say, and I'm glad you're not because we have a nice book. Right? If you were, we wouldn't have a nice book like that. So, um, uh, but one of the things that I liked, you know, because I think it'd be it, to me it would be boring if it was just tactics, mm -hmm. right? If 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 what you were talking about was we're just going to talk about how a steel predator can kick a character's ass, and and we're not even really thinking about where it came from or what it does or why it's doing what it's doing. You know, I I think that there is a to to me that was that that you know having played a lot of fourth edition, right? A lot of fourth edition kind of lent that way of it was less it was less important to worry about the story that a monster had and more important to say how is this going to be handled in in a in a battle? Okay. Specific, specifically, like it's a chess piece that a DM is moving around the table, right? And I think when we when the thing that I that I very much like about about your analyses is that. You're not thinking about how you would run a steel predator to, to make its most effective on the battlefield. You're thinking about how that steel predator is going to act in the world. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to find the way for the steel predator to right. behave most like itself. Yeah, and it's still a super crunchy approach, right? You're, you're, you're looking in the deep details on here. You're not just like, I don't know, it runs up and attacks a dude. Yeah. Right, I'm pulling, <laughs> like, I'm like I tend back to do. My high school probability math. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So you know that that I that is where you know one of the things that I like about reading it is like you and I have these different approaches of how we look at things. But I look at that and it's like that that to me is we're we're aiming at the same spot. We want interesting stories. You know, we want monsters to act in an interesting story in a, in a particular way, which I think is I, I think is a fantastic way to look at. It. I think it's a very I think it's a, a a good and important way to look at how monsters act in particularly in this edition of D and D, where I feel like it's it definitely and the, the the designers have talked about this that has a more story focused approach than 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 the, the, the tactical war game approach of of you know probably late three late third and and fourth edition. You know, one other angle though that I don't really talk about. Um, it's just sort of one of those uh, uh, foundational axioms. Um, is that you really need to think about monsters like this for them to live up to their challenge rating. If yeah. you want to use challenge rating mathematically to balance encounters, which is always gonna be a little more art than science anyway, but if you are not running a monster the way that, that expresses the full potential of what it can do, then you know maybe you're not running a challenge 16 steel predator maybe you're running a challenge 14 steel predator and that can make a big difference 
in how the combat feels when it plays out. Um, you really, and, and this becomes even more true at higher levels when PCs are acquiring more magic weapons, more magic armor, because the whole CR and counterbuilding schema is built on the assumption of no magic armor, no magic weapons. So every time your players get those, and in most campaigns they get them pretty often, um, the gap between the intended difficulty of the encounter and the reality is gonna get wider and wider. So you're running a tremendous risk of a combat encounter being anticlimactic and unsatisfying. Uh, if you're not using the monster to its full potential. Yeah. Um, so jumping ahead, I have, I have a list of nine questions that I planned on talking to and I have eight <laughs> minutes left. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to instead ask one question okay. and then we'll jump to some questions from our, from our audience as well. Hopefully we can do, hopefully we did do two or three of theirs. Um, but when we think about monster tactics, particularly for those high challenge monsters that are very intelligent, you know, when I think about the, one of my favorite villains was was Imrith, who's an ancient blue dragon that can cast spells, right? And in my version of the game, she was, you know, like a thousand years old and she uh, had simulacrums of herself. She made it, she was working on becoming, on a, a, becoming a Dracolich, you know? And like, when I thought about her intellect, she, she's like, she's invincible. Like, like, you know, a group of mortals is not going to be able to outthink a thousand year old ancient blue dragon sorceress, 20 level sorceress. And, and, you know, so I had, and, and, and it worked out in that circumstance. We had really interesting, um, you know, the interesting ways where they learned some information she didn't know that they could learn and that let them circumvent a lot of her stuff. But part of it is when you look at the tactics of some of the monster, where does the, where do the monster tactics and thinking in the, the depth of those tactics, where does it clash with the, or could potentially clash with the fun of the game? Mm -hmm. and, and then how do, you, how do you deal with that? So I think there are two main scenarios uh, in which tactics and fun clash. Um, the first is when the monsters chosen are not of an appropriate challenge level for the PCs at this point in the narrative. Now, sometimes that means they're OP. Other times it means they're pushovers. Um, it, it, it really depends on the pace of the story, the point in the story. Um, I, I, I want to, I'll see how fast I can tell this anecdote. Um, you know, you and, you and I are, are of a generation here and uh, my parents, they, they weren't they were a little too old to be hippies, but they were definitely hippie adjacent, especially my dad. And uh, I grew up with a copy of the New Games book in the house. Are you familiar with that? I know. Um, New Games Foundation, Play Hard, Play Fair, Nobody Hurt. Uh, <laughs> They're all uh, games that uh, do not have designated winners and losers that are nonviolent. One of the games in it is called New Frisbee. And the game is, you and a friend throw a frisbee back and forth. But as you do, you imagine a circle around your partner. Inside the circle, they can catch any frisbee you throw to them. Outside the circle, they cannot catch any frisbee you throw to them. Your goal 
is to throw the frisbee at the edge of the circle. And I see dungeon mastering as being very much akin to new frisbee. Uh, and it turns out, you know, I, I have a master's degree in education, and there's an educational psychology concept very similar to this called the zone of pro uh, proximal development, Vygotsky, I believe. Um, and, and within this theory, um, students learn best when you are giving them challenges that they can succeed at, but that they have to push themselves to succeed at. And I think that is the most satisfying pocket of difficulty. Um, so where tactics and fun clash is when the tactics are, are doing something to uh, basically to push the Frisbee out of the circle. Uh, and that's kind of related to the second uh, scenario in which tactics and fun clash, which is that the DM isn't fundamentally on the player's side. No matter what kind of challenges you're throwing at them, even if they're super deadly, you got to be fundamentally on your player's side. It is often narratively appropriate to give them challenges they can't handle. But when you do that, you got to give them a way to run away. You have to give them an escape hatch, some way out of the encounter um, when they realize things are not going to go well from this point forward. And if you are not giving them that way out, but you're still pulling out all the stops tactically, you're just being cruel. That's, that is not in the interest of fun. Um, I am, you know, I, I don't consider it a compliment when somebody says, I used your tactics and got a TPK. Um, well, why didn't you give your players a way yeah. to avoid the TPK? I mean, if it, was, if it was just their own bad judgment, that's one thing if they had an opportunity to get out of there and they didn't take that opportunity, that's one thing. But if, if you did not give them the opportunity to say, holy heck, we can't win this, let's get out of here, execute plan B and, uh, you know, and, and lick their wounds and come back later, then you weren't, you weren't playing fair, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, use the tactics to, make the encounters thrilling. Don't use the tactics to make the encounters punishing. Mm -hmm. I was just, I was looking at your vampire because to me, the vampire is one of those. And I think it was, I can't remember if it was Chris Perkins or Jeremy Crawford who said like, they've never had a vampire get defeated, right? That like, and I know it was Perkins because, or not Perkins because he did, he had one mm -hmm. defeated in a show. Um, but like they, they have certain powers and abilities and they're so smart. That even at their challenge level, even when they're they're appropriate at the, at a challenge level rate, if you play them smart enough, and I was just looking like you say, like a vampire doesn't fight in a fight where it's not going to kick everyone's ass, like that's, right? You know yeah. why would it? It's smart, right? So, and that's one where it's like, man, you know, Curse of Strahd would be pretty lame if you don't ever actually get to fight Strahd. Vampires are very <laughs> attached to their own existence, right? Right, <laughs> right, right. So, like. But, you know, and, and yeah. I've Lynch run is also. Yeah, right, right. And, and, you know, both of them have these, like, I think, I think this is, you, you wrote about these, like, both of them have this absolute fallback of like, you're not really going to kill me as long as I have a coffin around. Yeah, you got to right. come at them with overwhelming force to be. Mm -hmm. a... But yeah, you know, and, that, okay, and it ain't, so it ain't you six people that, with then you start amassing the overwhelming force. Right, right, right. Yeah. So it's an interesting one about how to how to play 
the the super intelligent monsters and beholders would be the same way right like how do you play super intelligent monsters and that that you know where you just don't get a normal except encounter the, except the beholders have the neuroses yeah they have and the personality yeah. kinks that you can have that aberrant yeah that weird aberrant personality right. i do want to get a couple of questions in from our audience uh who's been waiting patiently <laughs> uh rudy 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 basso is our guardian angel in in this show and has been uh looking at the questions and pulling them in rudy what do you got yes hello so here's a question regarding smart monsters and their abilities from Strife Master 69 in chat. Uh, how should monsters use the charm ability Perfect. considering what they know about the person they are charming in terms of abilities? Uh, well, they should use it for the same reason that you take a piece in chess to change the numerical balance between the two sides. Um, charm is a tricky condition to make use of in a combat encounter because it's so easy to clear uh, compared with pretty much all of the other conditions except maybe prone, which you can just stand up from. It's, it's real easy to trip up and uncharm a charmed character by you know they they get collateral damage dealt to them or or something like that i don't think that's true with the vampire's charm though right uh it, it may not be i think that the, the vampire's charm the vampire, the vampire has to hurt the guy yeah <laughs> it's just uh, never, they're never gonna do that vampire's charm is very effective um you but you in part you use it to reduce the enemy's numbers take someone away from their side add someone to your side um you can use them to uh let's see i haven't I've, I've just begun running curse of strahd so i haven't you know given <laughs> a lot of treat. thought yet to uh to how strahd is going to play these i would things. love to hear how you run strahd um but um <laughs> hmm well i mean one thing is you use them as a human shield definitely um you know you you don't want to kill this person they were your friend you know so maybe you can get them back maybe you can't <laughs> you know <laughs> i'm not going to tell you which one it is um but uh i, I yeah, think this the, is... most, the most important part is is changing the numbers because you're dealing with pretty small numbers on both sides so every change is going to make a big difference yeah that, that, that question way. that question hits exactly what what i was talking about on the on the fun versus tactics side mm. which is having run you know like and it, 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 different players will handle it differently and if you can do something interesting if you have a player who's into it and you say like you know the vampire charms you and now you're its best friend and he says, defend me. And the barbarian's like, hell yes. Like, I've been waiting to beat this mage my whole career. And then, you know, the player is perfectly happy beating the crap out of the other characters. But I've had some groups where they just hate that. Like, they, they, they hate, they don't want to do it. The other players don't want them to do it. The whole feeling of the game kind of goes in this downward direction where they feel like they're forced to do this thing they want to do. It's almost as bad as being stunned for a long period of time. It's like, I have no agency over my character you just took all my agency and in the case of a vampire because it's so sticky you know oh. like as a dm i often have the vampire immediately go up and bite them because they can get this free bite attack they can drain a bunch of hit points they can drain you know and then the character goes back into the fray again but tactically it's a terrible choice right? yeah. like if you could charm someone and, and then say like go stand in that corner and think about what you've done just so i could get rid of you for the whole battle that is by far the best tactical choice that i think a vampire 
who knows their capabilities would want someone to do. I actually think the fun falls them, apart. Yeah, I actually think having them turn coat um, is a preferable choice to, well, I've got you charmed. Uh, I'm just going to send you off to uh, run right. some errands for me. Right, yeah. right, go, right. Go, like, buy up all the garlic in town and throw <laughs> it in the well. Um, I mean, yeah, that, that, one, that one's on, a tricky Nobody one. wants that. Right, right. No one <laughs> wants that. Right, wants and it. and that again, I go just like with the with the Missy step. You know, I change charm all the time. I'm like, it'll be a bonus action where the vampire gets advantage against you. Now it's got this sort of you know thematic, interesting thing. You know what I think is it, one of the best applications of the vampire's charm? Yeah, give it to a mind flayer in place of dominate monster. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Or uh, dominate person, dominate monster. Which one does it have? I, I forget know. which one it has. Whichever yeah. dominate it has. Right. Give it the vampire's charm ability or the aboleths and slave instead, because five mm -hmm. E mind flayers are a little too not the not the too squishy Flash Gordon supervillains they should be. Right. <laughs> uh, Rudy, give us give us another question. Sure, we got one more question from He's Nacho Problem. In I chat. know He's Nacho Problem. Yes. What is your approach when analyzing the tactics for multiple monsters that are of different sorts? For example, goblins, hobgoblins, and wolves. That sounds like such a hassle. I analyze them independently um, and then see how they fit together. Because wolves did not evolve to be hobgoblin sidekicks. They evolved to be wolves. Um, so the question is, if you are a hobgoblin commanding goblins and wolves, how do you take advantage of the way these creatures already are to further your design? Um, you know, one of the one of the things um, about goblinoids that's uh, kind of interesting in Volos is that uh, it posits that gob goblins under the command of hobgoblins suddenly develop discipline and deference. Hmm. I'm like, I don't know, do they? Like maybe they do when the hobgoblins are watching, <laughs> but when the hobgoblins aren't watching, I think they probably just go back to, you know, being gobliny. Um, they, they, I, I actually, uh, I think it's in Goblinoids Revisited, an entry on my blog, I talk about this where um, I originally said that hobgoblin captains or hobgoblin warlords that have goblins in their units are not going to lead from the front. They're going to stand back because they got to keep an eye on the goblins and make sure the goblins are doing what the hobgoblins want them to do. And if you read Volos and take the material in Volos at face value, then hobgoblin captains and warlords can actually lead from the front because they can trust the goblins next to them to uh, maintain discipline. Um, but I think that's that's probably a decision that can be made on a DM by DM basis. I personally would keep the goblins more gobliny when the hobgoblins aren't watching. It's more fun too, right? Like yeah. there's a lot, lot more interesting flavor you have. Man, I, little it, goblins in regiments sound boring, but goblins tying cans to people's feet. Writing this blog taught me how much fun goblins can yeah. be. I never imagined it until I sat down to write my first blog entry, looked at that stat block, and realized what it implied. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, do we have time Why for one more question? Uh, sure. I have a question. It's kind of specific, but that's okay. From DM Life at Saint Herdman on Twitter. Can, should a roper on a cave ceiling intentionally lift, then drop PCs with tendrils? You know, I actually saw that uh, just before I logged on. Okay. Uh, I saw that on Twitter. Um, yes, I think they can. Why would they? Their bite does so much more damage. Right. And they want to eat. Right? Now, if, uh, yeah, yeah, that's why they're reeling you in in the first place. And their intelligence is low. Now, they can only bite, reel in and bite one um target whereas they can grab multiple targets at the same time so they could <laughs> reel one in bite them reel in some others and just drop them again right but yeah so they could kind of have like one that they're eating and three that they're beating against the ground as you mentioned they are not very bright mm. they are I, I would say their intelligence is too low for them to behave that flexibly and that, like you said, they want to eat. They're monstrosities. That's all they care about, really, is food and maybe territory. Territory being a way to make sure they get food. So I think once they grab an opponent and pick it up, they're not just going to drop it. They're going to hold on to it until they can eat them. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, That's I would great. say, yes, they can do that, but I would not have them do that. I have to I have to give my favorite monster. We we didn't have a chance to talk about monsters in their environment, but I'll give one tiny little anecdote of monsters in their environment, which is the trick I've used multiple times of a roper that is up on the ceiling at the edge of a waterfall. So people are riding on boats and they see these tendrils hanging down, and before their boat goes over the uh, waterfall, uh, they grab onto the tendril and then are reached up into the roper's mouth. And eat. That's a good one. That if, has uh, worked now multiple uh, multiple groups has <laughs> have faced that problem. Look at look at uh, look at harpies as yeah. a good example of monsters taking advantage of their environment. Yeah, I will. I will. Keith, this has been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry I, I didn't allow more time for questions. No, 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 it's good. Uh, that The analysis of the Steel Predator is a really great way to kind of get into the mind of, of how you do these. So uh, very, very, very helpful. Uh, the, the book, again, is The Monsters Know What They're Doing, available everywhere, right? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, all, and all, uh, just a retailers. really, really fantastic book. Uh, you know, I think it's probably already doing really well. If, uh, if you are a friendly local game store yep. uh, buyer, and you do not have a an established relationship with a book distributor, uh, go to spyandowl.com, which is my website. Uh, there is a link there to get you in touch with Simon & Schuster Distribution so that you can order them wholesale. Excellent, excellent. That's that's really great. Yeah, and I, I saw that you're, you have a big drive to try to make sure that independent book publishers have access to this, right? It's your, mm -hmm. So I think that's really great as well. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I, of course, have to thank Rudy Basso for managing the whole show. Rudy, thank you very much. And, and thank you to all of the people that have watched live and everybody that's watching on YouTube later and everybody that's listening to the podcast. Thank you all very much. And we will have another show soon. And I'll see you at PAX. See you at PAX. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be a good time.